Hey, Wonderfuls, welcome to episode 381 of the JV Club as we roll into week two of Max Fun Drive. This is my wonderful guest, Alan Zweibel, truly one of the big comedy heroes in my life and just an extraordinarily great down-to-earth, funny, and warm, wonderful person. So I hope you enjoy this episode. A couple things to bear in mind. Uh, number one is this was actually a follow-up conversation we had from a first earlier, much longer conversation in which the audio on half of the conversation uh, was non-existent. It's a long story, but basically, um, I'm so happy to have re-recorded with Alan. And so for any reason we make references to like a past conversation, please know that it was the first beginning of our beautiful friendship. Uh, And that first conversation included a MASH game. So what I might do is pop in at the end of the episode to tell you what uh, Alan picked for his MASH stuff and what he ended up with. Um, And of course, I want to talk to you a little bit about Max Fun. The only other thing I wanted to say about Alan is that his marvelous book, which I did read cover to cover, is also going to be available on audiobook uh, on the 21st, which is now. So you can listen to it as an audiobook with Alan's narration if you prefer to go that way. Anybody who listens to the podcast regularly knows I am a big uh, audiobook nerd, so recommended. Big thumbs up. And now just to dive back very briefly again into Max Fun Drive. Oh, friends, 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 friends. We're so grateful that because of you, our members, we can keep doing this show during these crazy times. And as you know, that's why we're doing a drive right now to remind you that you, 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 you are the reason that we can make this content for you to enjoy uh, again, Max Fun is totally audience supported, which means we're free to make the content you enjoy because people like you contribute. If you have already contributed, thank you, thank you, thank you so, so, so much. If you haven't yet, but you're thinking about it, um, wonderful, wonderful, great. If you can't right now and you want to participate in other ways, that's also fabulous. Um, make sure you're following us on social media. And uh, if you are thinking about joining, you can choose a monthly amount that's comfortable for you. The majority of people do like $5 a month or $10 a month. Some upgrade to $20, $35, or even $100 per month or more. It's really all about what works for you. Cannot emphasize that enough. Uh, I am also going to be doing what I did last year with the $20 a month members, which is a customized uh, video chat mash game. Um... So if you're interested in that, uh, reach out to me on social media at Janet Varney, or you can email me at Janet at JanetVarney.com. But those $20 a month subscribers, um, it is like a hardcore mash game. Anybody who's listening to this who did it last year knows we spend like 45 minutes to an hour video chatting together because when I dig deep into mash with you, I want to get to know you and I want to know what you're into and I want to have a great time. So it's uh, it's pretty fun. It's pretty special, I think. Um, and- if you've done it last year and you want to sing its praises, feel free to do that online and I'll retweet you. I am going to move on into the episode right now. We'll be talking a little bit more about Max Fun Drive midway through. And I, again, adore you. And I just can't thank you enough for making it possible for me to continue making the JV Club. You're wonderful. Oh, 
how's, how's everything been? How was the anniversary? How was the Billy Crystal anniversary uh, oh, wow, yeah. cocktail uh, hour? It, 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 look, it was 50th anniversary. So you look and on your laptop and you see somebody's entire life. Yeah. There's, and, you know, children and grandchildren and all of the friends that he's met along the way and the people that he's worked with. And um, I told you about the weekly cocktail party we have, did I not? Yeah. So uh, so a lot of the members you know, were there. So it was like the second time that week that we saw, you know, Rob Reiner and his wife and Barry Levins and his wife and, 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 and whatever. But it was, um, if you look at somebody's whole life and it's this pastiche that's right in front of you. And having been a part of it for 44, 45 years, you know, you see some of your own life and you also go, oh, you did good. You know, Robin pointed out something interesting because Janice, that's Billy's mom, is 92. She's still alive and she was in this party. And Robin said, and she's right, how many people live to see their child celebrate their 50th anniversary? Wow. Yeah. Like mind boggling, you know? Yeah. And um, so that was a lot of fun. And let's see, uh, what else? Uh, since then, um, uh, we had a, always have our weekly Friday night cocktail parties, which, which are good. Me and Robin are really the only ones who take advantage of it, the cocktail part of it because it's 8 o'clock here. So we got the Moscow Mules going. And uh, <laughs> there it's the middle of the afternoon. <laughs> still towards the end, you know. So by the end, we're really <laughs> but that becomes the Albert Brooks Marty Short show. We just um, uh, sit back and enjoy the ride, and you know, occasionally talk, or in my case, get a joke in here or there. But <laughs> but Albert is on a, such a different level than the rest of the world. We just marvel, even after all this time, how his mind operates. You know, yeah, plane. And then just that dry delivery where something just kind of gets slipped in. Like, it gets slipped in, yeah. It's somebody talking without uh, saying, I'm going to do something funny now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did you finish recording the audiobook version of, uh, yeah, of the book? Uh, tomorrow, um, tomorrow I, have one, I have to do some pickups, they told me. But yes, I think it comes out the 6th. So um, that's oh, great. Say something like that. When you, because you have, the book is so replete with just like anecdote after anecdote, um, it almost feels like you reverse engineered your own life in comedy so that you would, you're like, listen, I'm going to write a book someday. I want only the best anecdotes. It's just like all these little golden nuggets of like, you know, I feel like all my stories are so rambling and they sort of <laughs> have no beginning, middle or end. And these, the, the, the stories that you've in, included in the book are just these like wonderful snapshots. Um, did you, did, were, did you like keep a journal? Were you taking notes or was that all just stuff that you really, you you have a, the memory for you know and then I said this and then she said this and there you go yeah by that that's it for the most part the um, I had been asked for a while to write some sort of a memoir and I resisted it because I I didn't want to do one of those and then I wrote this and I wrote that and I um, that would bore me and um, I didn't think it was necessary. Uh, what I decided that I would 
okay, maybe I will do it. This was after Gary Shandling died. And um, there was an emotional um, uh, emptiness there. He and I had, uh, when we stopped doing our show, uh, we weren't talking. And then Robin, my wife, um, called him when he was appearing in Atlantic City. Uh, and she, she said, I'm bringing Alan down. I'm putting you both in a room until uh, and you're not coming out until your friends have been through too much. So that happened. But still, we were on to different things. I was on to new projects, and he was starting the Larry Sanders show. And so we didn't have to be with each other every day. We didn't have to go to the same set or the same office. So there had to be an, had to be an effort. An effort had to been made, okay? And uh, I made the decision personally that it was more important for me to have Gary Shandling in my life than not, despite our differences. And um, uh, so I found myself being pursuant of him. Uh, and I came to uh, accept the fact that, uh, all right, if he answers it one out of every three emails, great. I wouldn't lament the other two. The same thing with return phone calls. And the, the Sunday basketball games at his house helped because we, he had a basketball court there and uh, those games have now become somewhat legendary. Whoever was in town would play in them. It would be Ben Stiller, you know, uh, Franken, uh, Judd Apatow, Sarah Silverman, uh, you know, everybody was playing in these games and it was, okay, it wasn't about work. It was about <laughs> old men with diminished skills. You know? <laughs> Listen, you say that, but your book uh, belies the truth, which is that you just ex you really uh, exhibited some casual brutality with several of the people. Oh, God, who yeah. For, you know, I, I, I re sort of remember breaking Franken's thumb. I remember oh, the ball and hitting the thumb and I remember taking him to the hospital. So I must have done that. What I wasn't aware of is that Judd said that I either dislocated or broke his shoulder. And to this very day, one arm is a little long, <laughs> longer than the other. And he said he thinks about me every time he puts a shirt on, which I would imagine is just about daily. So, um, but, it, but as far as Gary was concerned, um, we were, you know, I made a point, okay, we're going to figure out how we made each other laugh always. I uh, had an admiration for him uh, and I, I was pursuant of him. And so this went on and we started communicating more. And I was out in LA, I guess this is about three years ago now, Billy Crystal and I were putting the finishing touches on a script that we had written uh, that uh, we have since shot and it stars Billy and Tiffany Haddish called Here Today that Billy directed. We're just waiting for a release date. God knows if it's gonna yeah. ever be movie theaters again or if it will just go to Netflix or Hulu or something. But I was at Billy's house working on the script and I was exchanging messages with Gary about having dinner and uh, I guess this was a Saturday. I was going back Monday morning to New York. I had a rehearsal for something and it worked out. It didn't work out that we would have dinner. <clears throat> so I, I called him from the airport and I, and we made up that we would we made a date to speak on the phone. 
that Thursday night. Well, that Thursday morning he died. What happened was the circle wasn't complete. Mm. You know, it, it, uh, you know, with Gilda, it took a wider turn. There were years of cancer. And even though you're shocked and you're grieved, and uh, I dealt with that with a book called Bunny Bunny, where I recreated my relationship with her. It became cathartic and therapeutic and, and, and whatever. Uh, I was either the Hollywood Reporter or Variety asked me to write a piece about Gary, and I did. And then Judd Apatow asked me if I would speak at Gary's memorial. So writing that eulogy was helpful also. But what that also did was it piqued my desire to revisit Gary somehow, to, to somehow make sense of our relationship, our friendship, our work, our partnership, and to say goodbye. And once I said, all right, I have the need to do that, then I thought, okay, maybe I will write that memoir because I knew what the Gilda part would be. Now there was an emotionality about the Gary part. Okay, so that was the impetus to, okay, let's try it. So back to your question about anecdotal things or having kept, no, no, I just went through the chronology of my life, childhood, and then graduating college and writing uh, jokes for Catskill comedians for $7 a joke. <laughs> I would remember along the way. Now, we have memorabilia here at the house. I have the book with 1,100 jokes that I gave Lauren Michaels as an audition piece to become a writer on the show. I had, and included in that binder are the jokes that I wrote for those Catskill guys. Okay, because that was part of my, you know, it was part of what sold me. <laughs> it was, you know, if I was a shoe salesman, that was my bag. I know, you had a little briefcase. There it was, that was my Willie Loman bag of stuff. That's right. So, um, but, and you know, yeah, we've have pictures and whatever, but there was never a diary. There was never a journal or anything. Uh, the memory is fairly vivid. And what would happen is when I would touch upon something, all of a sudden I go, oh, wow. Yeah, I remember when um, I first joined the Friars Club and then I told that story, you know, walking down the street, going to the Friars Club. The street was totally empty. Nobody was around this time of day. And out from a doorway, about 100 feet in front of me, pops Henny Youngman, the king of the one-liners, who starts to cross the street. And he thinks he's alone. He doesn't know him behind him. And so as far as he's concerned, the street is empty. He crosses the street to go towards the front door of the Friars Club. And just as he just about ready to hit the curb, a pigeon flutters down, lands near his feet. And Henny looks at the pigeon and goes, any mail for me? And, <laughs> whoa, it's fucking nice talking to a bird, okay? Because he didn't <laughs> know I was there. And so, all right, so there was that. I forgot about that story. What other stories were there in that time, in that era? Who's the cast of characters when I was first taken to the Friars Club? Those old comics, you know, the ones who had done, boy, it was, you know, some of them had done the last days of vaudeville. These were old, because these guys, some of them were in their 70s, and I was, this was in the, in the 1980s. So they were around for that. There was an old comic. I went, oh yeah, that's when I met Gene Balos who was an old man, 
And if you saw a picture of him, he had droopy eyes and he sort of looked like a beagle, like a sad sack kind of guy. And I was introduced to him when I first joined the Friars Club. It was the comic named Corbett Monica. I go, Jesus, I gotta remember, I wanna have some Corbett Monica stories. But Corbett Monica introduced me to Gene Balos as a, a very funny young writer. And Gene Balos looks at me, he says, you know who else is funny? My dentist. And he opens his mouth and about 30 chiclets come pouring out. Oh, God. And to this very day, I don't know if Gene Balos saw me coming and put <laughs> chiclets in because I'll do the joke for this kid. Or <laughs> that he just walked around with chiclets with somebody. <laughs> somebody. So one thing begat the next. You know, and so there was a stream of consciousness there that um, each era, whether it was the Catskills, the early days of SNL, uh, the stand-up year, for me was one year, but what the years were like at the Improvisation and Catch a Rising Star in the uh, early 70s, then Shandling, you know, and then uh, some of the, uh, uh, you know, Billy Crystal doing 700 Sundays with him. Well, there was a, a link there because I met Billy the first week that I was trying to be a comic at Catch a Rising Star. I got tired of writing for those old guys up in the Catskills who were twice my age. I was 21 and they wanted jokes about paving the driveway. <laughs> you know I mean? Or about why their wives wouldn't sleep because they had their hair done that day. And I go, fuck, right. I, I don't want to write this. So um, I took the jokes they wouldn't buy for me and I went on stage at uh, Improvisation Catch a Rising Star just to tell those jokes to advertise the writing. And uh, with the hopes that a manager and agent would like it and want to represent me to be a TV writer, and the first week I'm there, I meet this young guy starting out, who was a year or so older than me, named Billy Crystal. We became friends. And um, he would pick me up at my parents' house on, on Long Island. He lived about three or four towns over. He was already married with a child. And he'd drive me to the city. And on the drive home in his little powder blue Volkswagen, we would listen to the cassettes of our respective acts and give each other notes, you know, on new material, how to say this, how to say that. So once I got to the Billy part of that, I go, all right, let's follow Billy. That's how the two of us started. And we became friends and his wife, Janice, and my wife, Robin, are really good friends. He's Uncle Billy to the kids. I look at his daughters uh, as my own nieces, maybe even as my own daughters, you know, and I go, all right, we became friends. And the next time we worked together, well, the next time we, we had never worked together. Then 20 years or so later, we're sharing an office. We're sharing a suite. Uh, Larry, David, Billy Crystal and I are sharing a suite up at Castle Rock, which was a company that Rob Reiner, who hosted the third Saturday Night Live ever, was his company. So, all right, so, okay, we'll get to Rob in a second. Let's follow the Billy thing. We had never worked with each other. And I was writing a movie called The Story of Us with this great writer named Jesse Nelson. And Billy stuck his head in the office, said, can I speak to you for a second? I followed him. He said, listen, I'm thinking of doing a one-man Broadway show called 700 Sundays about my mom and dad and my family. Would you like to collaborate with me? And I said, you bet. 
you know, and I had never met, I met his brothers, I know his brothers, but I never met anybody else. And here he was, my good pal, trusting me with his family, you know, to put words in their mouths, to embellish memories. And it wasn't hard, even though I didn't meet these people because I'm another Jew from Long Island. So it's not like a different planet. I knew the cast, okay? Right, right. My uncle, I wrote for my grandfather, you know, and it, 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 it meshed. You know, it's like we said in 700 Sundays, we all have the same family. They just jump from album to album, okay? Mm. So that was, but the emotional part of that for me was, here's my friend who trusted me with his family, the most precious thing in his world, all right? I was very respectful of that trust. So there was an emotional tug there. And then we just, and then 20 years later, he sees me on the Letterman show, tell an anecdote. And uh, he calls me the next day and says, why don't we make that anecdote the first scene in a movie and let's see where the script takes us. And that ended up becoming the movie we just shot with he and Tiffany Haddish. So I had my Billy thread there. The rock mm. was embedded in there, so I went back. So what happened was there were these little building blocks that I would go back to and then all these other little tributaries that made it dense within it. This anecdote, that anecdote, you know? So um, it was snapshots, if, in, in your mental snapshots, if you will. And it was a, a huge therapy session, you know, when you just jump around and tell stuff. Yeah. Order to it, you know, there's no real order to it. You know, go, oh, then this, oh yeah, and then two years later, he did. it became like that. And that was the fun of it. That was the fun of it because um, I, it wasn't school. It wasn't the big compass. Mm -hmm. I resisted it because when you write a new novel, when you write a new book, when you, you know, I have children's books, those are creative things. And I didn't want to spend my time remembering. Yeah. Like I said, once I figured out what, it, what this is at its core, and that I would dedicate it to my younger sister, Fran, who passed away three years ago, but we were close, we were two years apart. We were pals growing up. And when I started doing this, I would read her jokes and she would, her laughter was important to me, you know? And I've done TV series that didn't make her laugh once. And I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> okay. So, all right, I got that thread in there. So, you know, it was once, I know I'm repeating myself, but it was following, um, finding these little touchstones here and there and tra tracing whatever the emotional um, uh, uh, path it took and yeah. in the book. Well, that makes sense. I mean, I think like I can absolutely see why someone like you, someone who sort of thinks the way you think and, and have, and you, you know, here you come from this like legendary world of comedy, which I, I think for some of us, you know, when you were talking about even just being at Castle Rock, there's a sense of, um, the book, you know, it's not like comedy start, comedy didn't start at any one time. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's not like, and then there was, and then there was the cat skills and then this, but there is a sense of particularly because of the Saturday Night Live connection, the sense of being in something as it was kind of incubating yeah. and then becoming something real. And I think it's harder and harder for those of us in comedy 
to feel like we're at the inception of something, right? Because there has been so much that's come before that I think ca- getting a chance to sort of capture that energy and feel like you ha- you're a fly on the wall for some of these like very iconic moments in comedy. Um, as you know, I feel like it's Gary Shandling show was, was one of them. It certainly was for me and my understanding of how comedy works, um, that you would, that, that you would say, you know, I, I gotta be able to approach this from a, a, a place that's grounded and that's emotionally honest rather than like, Hey, someone said I should cobble together a bunch of different funny stories and that'll that's be the book. Like that right. does sound kind of just like a, a little bit of a snore or that it would feel well, because not for, not to read because people love reading that stuff, but for the person who experienced it, there's a sense of like, I, why am I trotting these out? Like, what's the utility Absolutely here? Right. You know, and so finding that thread and those multiple threads that are based in, that t- completely grounded in human relationships, it, it makes sense that that's be, would be sort of like what makes the gas, you know, what puts the gas in the tank for the book. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a thousand percent right. Um, what ride are you taking? Are you cobbling something together, which is um, at best, at best it's uh, manufactured, okay? But if you start from a different place and it becomes one person's journey, but if it's an emotional journey that happened to go through and be lucky enough to be on the inside or a part of these things, you got to know the person um, who took this journey there's something where you can hook in, uh, you know, for uh, and go along on the ride. You, you know, yeah. it's the thing that tows you. You know, um, a friend Carl Reiner passed away yesterday, and yeah, you know, so uh, so obviously it was like a death in the family, and we, we all called each other. Obviously, called Rob and and, um, and and you know everyone. You know, he's just reaching out. And, the tweeting and, and this and that. But what you said about SNL was is, is wonderfully correct in the sense that, oh, how do I meet this guy? Because I grew up idolizing him, the Dick Van Dyke show, the 2,000-year-old man. Well, Rob Reiner hosted the third SNL ever. And then when uh, Gilda married Gene Wilder, Gene was part of a group that had, that Mel Brooks was in and Paul Reiner, it, it was uh, uh, the next, the older generation. So when Robin and I, when we moved to LA, we got to meet them and hang with them and become friends with them. And when I started working with Rob uh, at Castle Rock, there was even more of that because if Rob had a movie and we went to uh, dinner before the screening, we would go with Carl and Mel and their wives and me and Robin. And, and we've had, we had satyrs that had Carl and Mel at the Sayers, okay? You know, Carl would say, uh, uh, why is this night different than any other night? And, and uh, Mel saying, I answered it last year, let's eat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I'm not gonna go through that again. You know, so, uh, it, so you're absolutely right. It's like um, the reconstruction of things, um, they present themselves to you. You don't have to do a lot of digging. You just yeah. have to look into, oh yeah, I remember. And then it takes on a little bit of a life of its own. And, um, uh, you know, and, but in answer to your uh, initial uh, reference, 
SNL opened up all those doors. It opened mm-hmm. because it, I was there five years. I mean, it was a combination of working with people who were not famous when we started and through our work together, there was great success. And with the show's success and with the attraction that Lorne Michaels had, people coming in to host, you know, people wanting to do the show. So you had it from within and without, and in this way and that way, and the doors that that opened. So for me to say that um, I got to know and have Buck Henry as my mentor, because, yeah, well, I wrote the, the Samurais for John Belushi, and Buck was in most of them because he was the perfect stooge. Right. And, Buck, and I became friends, and, you know, and he became my lifelong friend, and uh, my wife Robin and his wife Irene are friends, and uh, it, it went beyond SNL, but it started there. That was the jump. You know, so it's like high school friends who, or camp friends who continue that friendship in college and marriage and beyond. But where did it start? It, well, that was camp. Yeah. And then at the Castle Rock, it was a different kind of camp. It was also um, not like SNL, because SNL had people coming in and knowing this. But Castle Rock, yeah, I knew Larry David already. I knew Billy already. But I didn't know Christopher Guest. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't know Jason Alexander and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. So that became its own core in itself. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's real interesting, you know, but it's like anybody else going, oh, where did I meet so-and-so? Oh, yeah, that was that summer where we met them when we went wherever. But this was a little easier because those places were uh, established. Okay, we're going to take a break. I will be back after a word from our wonderful buddies at Maximum Fun. Wonderfuls, it's me. I am interrupting my own podcast to talk to you a little bit more about Max Fun Drive. I want to just take a moment to quickly shout out those of you who on social media like Twitter have been boosting Max Fun's voice uh, during the drive by saying lovely, lovely things about this podcast and others uh, and sharing with the world. Um, Mary and Nikki and Amanda, um, Chris, those of you, I'm sure I'm missing people. I will go back and give you further shout outs as Max Fun Drive continues. But uh, it means the world to us. And I just wish that you could be a fly on the wall internally in just various emails that come through from Max Fun producers and their whole team with me, with other hosts. It All the love is real. And it's just such a lovely, lovely group of people. Um, this is a hard time, right? It's so hard to ask for money. And uh, I, I couldn't do it and wouldn't do it if I didn't love this network so much. As you know, my podcast has been, was free for the first, what, six plus years. And I refuse to ever do any ads really. <laughs> um, but when I came aboard this network, I did it because it's, uh, it's a place I believe in. And um, I'm, I'm so happy to be a part of it and to help them uh, with their kind of infrastructure. So uh, if you can give, please do. Thank you again for those of you who are shouting out on social media. You are saying lovely things. Um, 
uh, again, about the whole network. And, and it's always great to hear stuff about the JV Club, but I'm also part of this bigger thing. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Just to revisit, just to revisit, uh, we've heard uh, so much from people who really value our work. And we really, really appreciate that in this crazy time of social distancing and feeling maybe more alone than we usually do. And I don't know if you're like me, but I'm really good at like hermiting. <laughs> so I'll just do this thing where I adapt even more than I need to. Like, oh, I guess I I guess I can't ever see anyone again. That probably means I can't talk to anyone either. I should probably just cut off all contact with everyone because that's how life is. And I need to protect myself like a little turtle. Uh, so for me, podcasts have been such a huge part of staying connected. And I think that's true maybe for some of you too, based on some of the feedback that that I've gotten and that, that Max Fun has been getting. So we hope that we are continuing to help you feel a little bit normal, make you laugh, um, give you something to think about that isn't the qu- quarantine <laughs> necessarily. And uh, if you can help continue to uh, support and, and, and make this content possible, obviously we couldn't appreciate you more. Uh, giving, how do you do it? Membership at Max Fun starts at $5 a month. That gets you all the bonus content, um, like the stuff I've been bragging about. You'll be able to access that for as long as you're a member. There's a whole lot of it already waiting for you right now. Uh, if you choose to join it $10 a month, you get a Max Fun membership card, a cool pin, and you also get the bonus content aforementioned. If you join at $20 a month or more, you get this year's special gift. And by gift, I mean gifts. A Max Fun game pack featuring a custom dice set. Nerds, I love it. And custom deck of playing cards. All with Max Fun designs. Just visit MaximumFun.org backslash join to become... Is it forward slash? Listen, you know what I mean. Uh, Join to become a member. Uh, If you want to support a little bit extra, but you aren't fully able to upgrade your membership if you're an existing member right now, you can check out boosting your membership by an amount between levels. It doesn't qualify for the gifts necessarily, but it does still directly support the show. So that's what we're calling the boost. Uh, And then I also mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, if you're at a $20 a month level with me and... um, we get it set up, I will be doing uh, custom MASH games uh, and video chats with people. So that's all very exciting. And it just leads me to wanting to once again express so much, so much gratitude. Uh, I think we've been remiss in acknowledging this. Um, You know, we were doing such a great job of it in social media and elsewhere for many of us cheering uh, every night at eight o'clock for those essential workers and for those of you who, and by essential, I mean people who are working in restaurants and retail and delivery and of course of course of course in the medical field but um just expressing appreciation for those of you who are doing things for the rest of us uh to keep us safe um in all kinds of different ways thank you so much uh that's not something i think again we've sort of let that slide a little bit and we shouldn't have so thank you thank you thank you um please enjoy the rest of the episode You know, looking at the the, the, the early <laughs> the early stuff that you were doing, as you were saying, you know, here you are trying to write for someone else's voice, and that someone else is like possibly your grandfather's age at the time. What a <laughs> what a journey between that and writing something as personal as this book. And you you know, you mentioned Bunny Bunny. Um, you mentioned uh, the project that you did with Billy, which of course is about his family. But do you feel like those two things? Like, let me put it this way. 
how, when was the first time you started writing funny stuff that also was about you? Like aside from your year of doing stand-up, you know, was because obviously doing SNL sketches and doing stuff like that is not tapping into that same emotional vulnerability. That's something like Bunny Bunny is. Was there an in-between? But like, what did, what was that like for you? Was that Well, well that's great. That's a wonderful question because when you're writing for other people, you're trying to capture their voice. You're trying to capture their emotionality and their points of view. So they'll be comfortable with what you're asking them to say. They have to say it with conviction as if this is what they believe. Uh, not only what they believe is funny, but what they believe is something they would say. And so that's a different muscle. And um, the muscle that it takes to write for yourself, whether you're doing it as a stand-up act or whether you're writing something personal to be read. Um, that's a fantastic question, Janet, because that takes a little bit, uh, it, it takes a different muscle and it takes a different psychological kind of disposition because you're exposing yourself. You're, you're analyzing yourself. You're going into your own past and what do you want to say about it? Do you want to relive it? Because some of it's painful, right. traumatic. And to be perfectly honest within it, how deep do you have to go? And what are you dredging up? Because yeah. if you don't get to that honest core, there's a fraudulence to it and it's not going to work. So for me, the in-between stage was when I wrote for Gary Shanling, Gary and I were very similar, except Gary didn't have that component where he was able to get married and have children and have that responsibility, if you will. So right. I had a, I just hooked into the uh, insecure single guy that I had been, okay? Uh, when I started writing, um, there's a book that I wrote, a novel that I called The Other Showman, uh, which was a novel, but it was an autobiographical novel that I wrote when my career uh, took a downturn and Robin and I were not getting along. And what I did was I made it fictitious, but the emotional core of it was a man who was 50-ish and was scared, okay? Because everything that he defined himself by was falling apart, or at least mm. legs. I still needed to hide behind the character, although the character was indeed me. Instead of being a comedy writer, I made him have a, uh, a stationary store. That was uh, in a mall that where the stores were getting shuttered because big, big mall. And this was a strip mall. A big, big mall was uh, opening about uh, two miles away and it had staples. Okay, and this was a mom and pop gross uh, uh, stationary store. Okay, fine. So it translated like that. The trouble that he was having his wife, this guy, was very similar to what the disconnect that me and Robin were having. Uh, what was similar about it was he ran the New York City Marathon. And uh, I ran two of those. I was able to relate to th that struggle, uh, that accomplishment, and the sense memories that a person goes through. In my case, when you're running through the five boroughs of New York, because being a native New Yorker, the, um, the sense memories that had long been buried, they come to the fore. So mm. I put him, if I were to go through the novel with you, 
and we would footnote what was really me or what was disguised me or what was made up, I would be able to do it. But so that was a step closer. Mm-hmm. Money was pure, it was raw, pure me or Gilda. All right. When that was written, it was not written to be read by other people. It was a very personal recreation of what I can remember of a relationship with my buddy. And it was Robin who um, motivated me. Gilda died in 1989, so like 1993, she said, you should write something about you and Gilda. And I said, I don't want to capitalize on that. She said, to hell with that. He said, your best friend died. You haven't cried yet. It's been four years. Yeah. If dealing with was the honesty of it, which was the attraction to the book, was that I didn't want it to be a book. This was, I wrote this at stoplights. I wrote this late at night, like a journal. I just created what I, everything I can remember about the relationship. It didn't even have sentences. Hmm. I wanted the words to touch each other. I didn't want the imposition of semicolons, which nobody knows how to use (laughs) to be in there. I wanted the words to touch each other. And that's why it was so raw. And there was such an emotional tug because it wasn't meant to be seen or shown, you know? So, um, it, 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 you know, it, it, there, there was an evolution. I love the question so much because I've not thought about this. There is an evolution that, that you undergo as to at what point in your life or your career, is it at the outset or mm-hmm. is it something that you grow into where you write about yourself with an honesty that um, people will find interesting and maybe funny? But the thing that's interesting about that too is that, um, and one of the reasons that I think show business is so fascinating to, to, to people who are on the outside of it is yes, those things are totally absurd and extraordinary and they really do speak to the artistic mind and the comedy mind and all the stuff that you sign up for when you get involved with that. But we all can relate to the idea of I hear, here's what this friendship looks like. And it's different from what this friendship looks like. And it's different from what this friendship looks like. And there are those conversations that we've all had to have with ourselves where we go, how important is this person to me? What role do they play in my life? And can I, can I find a way that that fits that works for both of us? Even if on its surface, there might be if not an imbalance or, you know, I know not to call this person if I'm, if it's an emergency, but I know this person would call me if it's an emergency, like all of those relationship dynamics, like we can all relate to that. You know what I mean? That, that there are going to be people in our lives that are extraordinary in some way, but that we cannot necessarily have the same expectations about as we could, you know, a different friend who serves a different, purpose. That sounds very utilitarian, but do you know what I mean? No, no, but you're you're a million percent right over here. I mean, and look what's going on now with this COVID business. Now that there's a Zoom uh, where people can speak to each other. And I think about what do we regularly see and keep in touch with the way you and I are talking right now on Zoom or, you know, with FaceTiming or whatever. And I think that there's a mental or emotional uh, inventory that we take and there's a reaction to, oh, like you just said, who am I gonna call or who do I wanna share this with? You know, good, bad, or, or otherwise. It's the stuff of human. 
Yeah, there really is something to, I mean, it's a different experience. There's, I think, speaking for myself, the rare times that, you know, I've written something that um, for whatever reason, when I look back a couple of years later, I can't even remember a process or any sense of frustration. You know, there's just different experiences you have as you're creating something. Um, uh, you can cert- I can certainly say like, oh, I, you know, look, I wrote this song. I kind of don't ever remember writing it. Now it sort of just seems like it was always around. Right. Um, but there's something about the dynamic of working with other people that really, for me, makes that even more ephemeral. It really makes it, you know, that, that one and one, that number three, uh, that's the work and the personality of the relationship that you're talking about, that right. really does become like sort of spiritual in this very weird way where, you know, as time goes by, I don't know how either one of us came up with, you know, or, or how the entire group came up with this thing that just feels like it just happened. Even if it was a grind at the time, uh, there's something really ephemeral about that third party that gets invented when people are working together. You're absolutely right. It becomes a concoction of some sort, it, 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 it is a soup that we're making. So you're a sound, I, I, I relate to everything you're saying was, yeah, I remember the process being fun. I look at the product and I go, wow, that's not the way I talk, but I did say that there. It's what keeps us on our toes and that, that's, um, you know, who do you want to have at your dinner party? Who, who, who are you going to sit next to who? Oh, we don't want that person coming at all because he won't get along with her because of A, B, and C. But if we put him in to her, they're so different that there might be some sparks there, you know? That's the writer's room at a TV show. Um, well, Alan, I don't want to keep you much longer. It's been uh, a, a glorious near hour. Um, it's been, I do feel like it's been slightly distracting that when I see you in that beautiful home of yours, all I can think is how dirty I would make all of that furniture. I mean, I don't know how, <laughs> look at how dark my couch is. It's like a dark blue. It can, it, it, as, as I spill whatever snack I'm eating and it gets stuffed on the cracks. I mean, I don't know how you're doing that. That's like a pristine okay, yeah, so, set of white furniture. Do you sit on it? Do you get to sit on it? I, yeah, the, the, uh, the big TV in this room is over there. So we sit here and watch TV, right? That all being said, if I spill anything, um, what Robin doesn't know is that half of these pillows I've already turned over. is <laughs> is disgusting with all sorts of gazpacho stains, guacamole smear. <laughs> That's reassuring. That's reassuring because everything I buy, I'm like, well, how am I going to ruin this and when? So uh, I'm very reassured. Oh, hi, you. I just wanted to pop in and give Alan's mash results at the bare minimum and also assure you he did sing. I'm so sorry that that recording does not exist. It's part of the beautiful, magical ether. Um, And (laughs) so here are the results for Alan's mash. I love that I'm so dedicated to mash that I insist on telling you what happened, even though you can't listen to it for yourself. Here I go. Alan has a beautiful apartment in northern Italy uh, on Lake Cuomo. He is uh, friends with Harpo Marx. 
Uh, we we brought Harpo back, and he's alive and well and doing great, and his buddies with Alan. We ha- gave him unlimited osobuko. You see there's maybe a trend developing here, and let me continue that trend in saying he can also jump into the Godfather whenever he so desires. Uh, he is a remarkable long-distance runner. He is... Uh, also responsible for having written the very famous song Layla. You might have thought Eric Clapton had something to do with it. You can forget about that right now. He wrote it. He is able to go back in time to solve what many people feel is a big mystery in the United States history of uh, presidents, which is, was JFK shot by who everyone says he was? Guess what? He's going to have a view from the grassy knoll. I said the, a view, a view from the grassy knoll and tell us exactly what happened. Thank you, Alan, for that. And, and I think this is maybe my favorite part of his mash game, he ended up with none other than Hester Prynne from The Scarlet Letter. And I think that's kind of extraordinary and wonderful. So that was mash uh, for Alan Zweibel, my, one of my, my comedy heroes. And that just leads me to say to you once again, Thank you so much if you've gone the extra mile to become a Max Fun member. Thank you for making this show possible. I said that almost like in a flirty way, but listen, maybe I'm flirting with you. I don't know. We're able to create content independent of outside influence. 100% true. One of the things I love about Max Fun because our audience, people like you, have chosen to support it. We cannot thank you enough. And if you're tired of hearing us say thank you, too bad because you're going to hear it for a couple more weeks as we wrap up Max Fun Drive. We love you. How to join. If you haven't had a chance to become a member yet, you can do so at MaximumFun.org slash join. I loves ya. Be well. Stay safe. I'll talk to you next week. Hey, you're number one. We could save kittens from trees. Or lunch on skyscrapers. Bring the villains to their knees. Maybe we should. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture Artist owned Audience supported